Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. It's me, your host, Zoe Blasky. Thank you for being here. This is the show that is going to help you to navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. You know, I really do believe that the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children is to become the most grounded, empowered, resilient versions of ourselves. And this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week, I am asking alongside with my guest, a really powerful, challenging and pertinent question, which is how can we raise children in a world that appears to have gone so wrong? Louis Weinstock is a psychotherapist who works with children and for over 20 years he has expertly guided children and adults through some of the toughest challenges life can throw at us. Louis describes a transformative moment for him when his little daughter Rose was born and he held her close and he whispered in her ear, you are safe, you are safe, you are safe. And then he realised, how can I make that promise when the world feels like such a challenging, unsafe place? And that is what led him to write the incredible book, How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. Louis shared that he wrote this book because he's been worried for a long time about the state of the world. And he's also been worried for a long time about the state of our children's minds. And he sees a clear connection between the two. So I first learned of this book when my lovely sister-in-law Georgie was reading it on our last visit together. Saw the title, snatched it out of her hands, knew I was going to love it, and I did. In this episode, we talk about how exactly the world is making our children mad, why our children's world actually begins with us, the parent, why it's vital to get to the root causes of what might be going on with our children, Why a lot of the mental health symptoms, in air quotes, that we see in children might actually be them trying to tell us something. We talk at the end about body image and how to protect our children from the staggering, scary, shocking statistics of body image issues that we're seeing. And of course, Louis offers us all a beautiful gift at the end. This is a really insightful episode. It's a powerful episode. I hope you love it. Here it is. I'm excited to tell you that this week's sponsor is dog food company Pooch and Mutt. And the reason I'm excited is because Pooch and Mutt is actually my husband Guy's company. So we are very much keeping it in the family this week. He founded Pooch and Mutt 13 years ago when he created a supplement to help his family dog, Cookie, who had hip dysplasia. She took that supplement, made a full recovery, and so Guy went on to create more supplements, then dog treats, and now dog food. I don't think he ever expected 13 years later it would have grown into the incredible business that it is today, helping millions of dogs all over the world. So something you need to know about my husband Guy is that he is obsessed with health and fitness. He even studied nutrition just to learn more about the ingredients in the food he was making. So at its core, Pooch and Mutt is a health-led company because Guy and the team know that what you eat affects the way you feel and they're pretty obsessed with helping your dog feel amazing and be as happy as they can be. So Pooch and Mutt offers different products to cater for loads of different health conditions and life stages of your dogs. So 
anxiety, digestive issues, joint health, weight management, skin issues, even dental health. And they range from puppy all the way up to senior. So our dog, Pepper, is on the joint health food at the moment because she had a little leg operation and her recovery has been incredible on that food. Not even the vet can believe it. So if you want to give Pooch and Mutt a try, my very generous husband is offering 25% off for Motherkind listeners. So to get 25% off online, just go to poochandmutt.co.uk, use code MOTHERKIND25. Pop in the code MOTHERKIND25 at poochandmutt.co.uk. And please note that excludes subscriptions. Oh, well, Louis, I'm really excited. I was just telling you, I inhaled your book in I think three hours, it just absolutely spoke to what I believe and what I see. And it was just incredible. You have such a way of describing some of these topics and concepts. So I can't wait to dive in this morning. Thank you so much. That's really lovely to hear. I'm very excited to chat with you. So you said, I wrote this book because I've been worried about the state of the world and the state of our children's minds. And I see a clear connection between the two. Tell us about that connection. Well, I mean, in some ways it's obvious, but interestingly, I don't think we talk about it that much, especially in the parenting world. If you look at the mainstream of parenting books, they tend to talk about raising children as though it happens in a vacuum. At least that's what I notice. So, you know, you might have like sort of the typical parenting titles like raising happy, resilient kids or the Danish way to raise a perfectly happy child. But they just don't talk about the world and what's happening in the world and the impact it has on our children and their minds and their brains and their bodies. My background is trained as a child psychotherapist and I've worked with children who are vulnerable on the edges of society for over 20 years now. And so through that time, I've learned some of the neuroscience and the research and just first-hand clinical experience. Children are born with these particularly open, what you might call plastic brains, which means that they are born and designed, in fact, to be influenced by the world around them. So children are born, this sort of paradoxical creature, human children are both the most vulnerable creatures on planet Earth. Like We're absolutely dependent on our parents and the environment to help us compared to other animals. But because of that, we can also be raised in different environments. We can adapt to different environments. You know, we can grow up and learn how to build an igloo or coding or learn how to speak different languages. So it both has a positive side and a negative side, the fact that human children are born this way. It's amazing because they can, with the right environment, be brought up to have the most incredible human qualities and go on to do really good things in the world. But equally, if they don't have the right environment, it can really damage them and send them down the wrong path. So for all of those reasons, I think it's really important to highlight that children's brains are influenced by the world around them. And I think what's so interesting about the title of the book, when I first saw it, I didn't know if you and your work, actually, I thought, is this going to be a book about blaming the outside world, of which there are many things that we can put blame on, social media, the state of the economy, the childcare crisis, the cost of living, there's so much that we can put blame on. But it was fascinating to me that within the first few pages, you said, don't forget that when we talk about the world, it begins with you. 
the parent. And I think that's where your work is really interesting and exciting to me because it's, and it's the external environment, but we don't get anywhere by just blaming that or in a way handing over our responsibility to well, the state of the world. What you say really clearly is that it starts with us, the parent. Tell me more about that. What I say in the book is that you, the parent, are the primary filter through which your child experiences the world. In short, you are their world, especially for the first few years. And as you say, it is easy to fall into a sort of trap of blaming external factors and the impact they're having on our children. And the downside of doing that, even though it's true, is that we end up feeling helpless it is a way of passing on responsibilities like, oh, gosh, well, there's just nothing we can do because social media, it's just too powerful and there's literally nothing we can do about it. But actually, there is a lot that you can do about these toxic forces in the world. It does start with that primary realization of, you've mentioned this to me when you contacted me at first, but it's that sense of a profound responsibility that we have as parents But what I did think when I read that term is that can feel overwhelming for parents. And what I found particularly interesting, and this seems to have been happening more and more recently, or maybe I've just noticed it more and more, but working a lot with mums who, when they give birth, they suddenly experience this terror. It's kind of like overwhelming anxiety. And I think a lot of that is to do with this sudden realization of the profound responsibility that you have. You've got this vulnerable creature who is so dependent on you for everything. That's really hard, especially in the modern world where you don't have so much support and disconnected from all traditions and all sorts of wisdom and things. So I sort of want to caveat the idea of profound responsibility by saying it's important also to be gentle with yourself because that can feel dizzying and overwhelming and almost unbearable, right? Absolutely. And that was my experience. And also we know, don't we, that mothers brains actually change. So the part that's responsible for compassion gets bigger, which is why I think people often, you know, like if I'm honest, like world issues just didn't used to affect me in the way that they do today. I think it turns lots of women into activists and a lot more interested in the world around them. And I think that's partly emotional. I think it's also that our brains literally change. So we think less about me and more about we, which makes sense, right? Why that would happen from an evolutionary perspective. But I think with so much going on, it can feel really overwhelming. Yes. And can I just say, because I know this is the mother kind podcast, but recent research has shown that dad's brains change as well when a child is born, which is so interesting. And I talk in the book about my climate awakening. I know that's a bit of a poncy term in a sense, but basically when my daughter Rose was born and I held her in my arms and I was whispering to her, you are safe, you are safe, you are safe, which is, you know, the thing that you want your child to feel. And also all my training as a psychotherapist, what you want your child to feel, especially when they come into this scary world. And then a year later, I started seeing these signs for Extinction Rebellion plastered around where we lived in London. And it really struck me in a way that had never struck me before because I had a child. Just that dawning realization that this is the world that we have brought this child into and what the hell is happening here. So I do think 
it's partly a biological shift and uh, just also connecting to what's going on in the world around you in a very different way when you're a parent. You know, we think about, oh my gosh, like the statistics. Sometimes I can't even read the statistics around children's mental health because I find it so... I'm a real empath. I find it so overwhelmingly difficult, but the statistics are absolutely shocking around children's mental health. Why do you think that is? You talk about root cause a lot in the book. What do you think is the root cause of that? I know what you mean about statistics, by the way. And actually, I was thinking before I came on this podcast, because there's so many terrifying statistics And I'm not sure actually how helpful it is overall just to list them. I think we all know and have a sense that there is something not right about our children's mental health in this world. And there's lots of statistics to back it up in short. We don't want to avoid it. We need to find a way to turn towards the reality without being overwhelmed by it. My approach and the one that I describe in the book is looking for the roots, what I call the roots and the fruits of our children's mental health. So the roots are factors that you see in the world. They're like deep patterns that have repeated actually across time. So they're not completely new. So for example, the first root I talk about is victim. And then I talk about narcissism. And the last second to last chapter is about hopelessness. So these are new phenomena. They've been around, you know, you've got the myth of narcissists, which It's kind of like a warning sign from a very long time ago about this deep-rooted pattern for human beings. But what I think is happening in the modern world is that things are speeding up. We're more connected to what I call the digital nervous system than ever before, which means we're really affected so much more by what's going on around us. You know, this sort of emotional contagion that we get through digital technology, We find it harder to just stop and process our feelings. We're disconnected from community. I mean, I think there's just many different causes, but my approach is to look at the places that we can begin to take responsibility ourselves. And that's what I mean when I talk about roots. It's the parts of ourselves where we can find these deep patterns Often it's the parts of ourselves that we find it difficult to accept or love. For example, the part of us that tends towards feeling helpless or like a victim, the part of us that wants to be seen and to be adored, or we might call it the narcissistic part of us. And then particularly, and I feel this was for me the most important chapter in the book, is the part of us that feels hopeless which is often a really difficult part for us to turn towards, partly because our culture just doesn't support it at all. We live still largely in a culture that's based on some ideal of happiness, that we should all be happy all the time, and this sort of toxic positivity. I do think that's changing a bit, but in ways that I'm a bit uncomfortable with as well. But this root of hopelessness The idea being if we can find a way as parents to make a space for and find some way to turn towards the part of us that sometimes does feel hopeless and despairing, only then can we actually help our kids when they do feel hopeless. And they will do at certain points. 
one way we definitely don't help them is by trying to brush it away or cover it up. And I have a story in the chapter on hopelessness about a boy I worked with called Ainsley, which might be worth sharing. Ainsley was a 14-year-old boy when he first came to see me, and he'd basically been kicked out of school. And his mum wasn't really sure at all what was going on. And in the first few sessions, Ainsley told me that he had been researching online about the climate crisis. And he'd been reading lots of very scary statistics. And he had become scared and then completely hopeless. What made him feel particularly hopeless is that at school, he just saw all these other kids and all the teachers just going around as though it was business as usual, just pretending that everything was okay. He talked about how he couldn't stand this fake sort of positivity and the fake smiles that he could see, whereas he was carrying this real existential burden this sense that the world was in crisis and there wasn't really much of a future for him and for people of his generation. So he ended up just not doing his work and being disobedient and got kicked out of school. Working with him was really a significant learning curve for me as a therapist and as a parent, I would say, because I think everyone's tendency is you just want to make people feel better. If your kid is crying, you want to make them feel better as quickly as possible, ideally. And part of that is because we don't have the capacity to sort of tolerate our own feelings of distress when we see somebody else in distress. Like you said, you're an empath, so it'll be difficult for you as it is for all of us. But working with Ainsley, I tried lots of different things. I was saying, well, why don't you channel it into joining a, a youth climate movement, all of these things? None of it was landing. And I realized in the end that I actually had to find a way to turn a bit more towards my own sense of hopelessness about what's going on in the world. And that was the only way that I could be alongside him and that he could feel less alone in his sense of hopelessness. And then it felt like we were sort of sitting together, looking out this horizon, which felt bleak, but wondering what we could do about it. And it was from that point of being within this sense of hopelessness and despair that we could actually build towards something a bit more solid and positive. So that's kind of probably a helpful story to sort of think about how I use the word roots and tending to these roots that we find in ourselves. It's really an important way for us to help our children through difficult times. Your approach is completely different to the mainstream approach to children's mental health because you say we need to see that our children's symptoms may be intelligent and I think that is really powerful and also it's really hard because we want to see that if one of our children is anxious we want to think that there is something that can be done to fix the anxiety and what you're saying maybe that's a CBT or positive thinking or a pill, which is what often tends to get prescribed, right, in my understanding. Whereas what you say is really quite different to that, that actually our children will be expressing, sometimes in a really intelligent, adaptive way, things that are being unsaid even in the greater world, just like that example with Ainsley, or within the family unit. Tell us about that because it's actually a big idea. We have talked about it on the podcast before. We've had like Philippa Perry and Gabor Mate. So we've talked about this idea, but I just love your take on that. 
your perspective? I think it's probably helpful to explain that I believe, and it's not just me believing it, there is the basic science of it, that children are, on one level, they're biological creatures. There is a level at which they are driven by this kind of intelligence, I would say, which just wants them to survive. I call it the life force, although that might sound a bit Star Warsy to some people, but it is. There's something inside that's driving them to survive, and that is this intelligence. So when a child comes into this world, they have this force that's guiding them to adapt to their environment. And a really good example of this, which I mentioned in the book, is even in the womb, the fetus isn't just this vulnerable, passive creature, but it's actually quite active in the womb. Graham Music, who's an amazing child psychotherapist, used to be my supervisor, and he's written a book called Nurturing Natures, which is a bit of a textbook for child psychotherapists. He describes the fetus in the womb as being like a cosmonaut in charge of a spacecraft which I think is a brilliant image and a metaphor. might be a bit scary if you're a mum who's carrying a baby at the moment, but a really good example of that is fetomaternal chimerism, which is a really complicated name. But what it describes is how the fetus in the womb can actually send stem cells into the mother's bloodstream to heal them. When I learned about that, I just thought that is mind-blowing and incredible because what it shows is, you know, you've got this being that you're carrying that's so intelligent and so adaptive and so cares about making the environment work, it will actually send stem cells to heal the mother, to heal the thing that's carrying it and bringing it into the world. And so that kind of intelligence carries on, obviously, after birth. And children don't have language and words to communicate how they feel up until a certain age anyway. And even after they get language, there is often so much unconscious communication. So when I talk about children's symptoms being an intelligent response to the world and trying to heal the world, that's really what I mean is if they're experiencing anxiety or if they're sometimes self-harming or pulling the hair out, it is very often a way of them trying to communicate something that's not working in the world around them, but they just don't have the language or they don't feel safe enough to express it. So I talk in the book about a girl I worked with who was pulling her hair out. She had had all the typical sort of surface level treatments with medication, CBT, all the typical surface level treatments and nothing was working to stop her from pulling her hair out. When I started working with her, I realized that she was just feeling incredibly disempowered. She had quite a lot of pressure being put on her to do well in her A-level exams, quite a lot of pressure from her school. She grew up in a family where she just didn't feel like it was safe for her to communicate how she felt. So instead of actually saying, this is too much, I can't bear the pressure, she was pulling her hair out. And what I found fascinating when I researched a bit is there's actually a whole tradition of people being described as pulling their hair out, going back as far as the Old Testament when they feel disempowered, which is really interesting. 
So when I worked with this girl, I basically quite simply in a way just supported her over a series of sessions to feel more empowered, which basically meant role playing, having conversations with her teachers and with her parents, just to be able to communicate how she felt and to actually ask to have a bit of a break to sort of get them to back off a bit in terms of the pressure they were putting on it. And just by giving her that sense of empowerment, she actually stopped pulling her hair out. So it wasn't complicated, but it was getting to the root of what this symptom was trying to communicate in the world around her. Are all symptoms trying to communicate something to us? I probably wouldn't want to say all, but what I would say, it's an incredibly helpful perspective to keep in mind. And the reason it's helpful is because it's not pathologizing the child. So if your child has some symptoms and you just focus purely on an individualized approach, in other words, you're just trying to fix the child, that child ends up typically thinking that there is something basically wrong with them. That's just generally not helpful. We want our children to feel empowered. And actually, if we can get our children to listen to their own bodies and to trust in the wisdom of their bodies and even to trust in the wisdom of their symptoms, finding ways to listen to it in a way that's not pathologizing, that's actually more likely to help them to heal. In my experience, if you go in with an approach that's saying, this thing that I've got, this symptom, this feeling, this thought is something I need to get rid of, and you go in with that kind of approach, you often end up creating conflict, internal conflict, and therefore it's not sustainable. Whereas the other approach that I'm suggesting, where we listen to the symptoms, we're open to the possibility that they might be trying to express something, it just helps the child to feel a bit less broken and a bit more like they can trust in their own bodies. And in a way, isn't that an incredible gift to give someone that young? But of course, the heartbreaking thing is not many children get access to someone like you. Lots of children don't have access to even some of those basic interventions that we were talking about. Can I just say something on that one? I just really want to say very, very clearly to any mums and parents who are listening, this is not rocket science. It really isn't. What I describe in my book is very, very simple. It's not hard to do these things. It just requires a bit of a shift and just changing what we habitually might tend to do. Quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. Our actions tell us everything we need to know about how much we value ourselves. And I really want you to hear this today. And I need to hear this today. You matter. Your health matters. Taking my Athletic Greens is one thing I can do every single day to take better care of myself. Every time I have it, I'm showing myself through my actions. I deserve to feel good as well. I am worth looking after. It helps me remember my mantra. I can only be the mother and woman that I want to be in this world when I look after myself. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Do you know what I think it takes as well? And I wanted you to talk about Nina and Billy because I was completely struck by that story. I think it takes courage of the parent. Like I'll share something quite vulnerable, actually. My seven-year-old, out of nowhere, she screams or shouts out of nowhere. And it took quite a lot of courage for me to think, what is it in me or this system that I think she's doing that for. And what I realized is that I have struggled because of my own history with uh, moments of dissociation where I will just, if things get flooded in my system, I just dissociate, go offline. And I was like, that is what I think it is. And I said to her one day, I said, do you know, I think you scream out of the blue because you notice that mummy's gone somewhere else. And she didn't say yes, but it's reduced. It's almost stopped since I even just said that. I've got such a good feeling about, you know, just you finding the courage to do that is incredible. But it took that knowledge, that awareness and that courage. And I think it does take a lot of courage because innate in what you're saying is that we, the parents, have to look to our own histories a little bit. And I think lots of people, for completely understandable reasons, just don't want to go there. Tell us about Nina and Billy, because Nina was very brave when she went there and what she uncovered about Billy's anger. Can I just say one thing about what you just described though, before I talk about Nina and Billy, that what you did in terms of naming what might be going on is a very simple but powerful thing that you can do as a parent for a child who might not have the language to express what they're expressing in other ways, like screaming. As long as you do it in a non-judgy, non-shaming, non-pathologizing way, which I am 100% sure you did. So, you know, you can say, for example, I've been thinking, I've been wondering if you're screaming because, mummy, whatever your hypothesis is, and just by naming it, you've noticed a difference, which is incredible. So I just wanted to highlight that in terms of just the simple things that parents can do that can make a big difference. I'll tell you what's mind-blowing to me is that I don't know if I'm right about that. I don't know if I'll ever know. But I think even just having that conversation, and she didn't say anything, she just ran off. Like she wasn't there going, oh yeah, you're right. Like I don't think she's seven, like she's not going to be able to access that. But I think it was just in the, maybe me taking some responsibility shifted something in her. I don't know. Well, when you are with your child, you're kind of so connected with them in so many different ways, aren't you? You're connected emotionally, maybe you're connected spiritually, depending on your beliefs. You're kind of like two nervous systems that are so attuned to each other. So if you change your perspective so that you're looking at a situation or you're looking at a symptom from a different point of view, and essentially your whole being, your nervous system, your energy is different, That in itself has a transmission, has a knock-on effect on the children. So I would keep that possibility in mind. And this is why Gabor Marte, who I know we're both fans of, says that the primary art of parenting isn't parenting at all, it's self-parenting. And I think that's what you're talking to. Yes. So shall I talk about Nina and Billy? Yes, do, because I was really touched by Nina's courage. So Nina was a mum who came to see me because her son, Billy, who was nine years old, had been getting in lots of trouble at school. He was fighting at school. They were getting into some really bad fights at home. And after one really bad fight, Billy had threatened to drink bleach. 
and it's sad and perhaps a scary story for some to hear. And he basically just said to his mum, I just want to die. He was feeling so sad and lost and despairing. But what we discovered with Nina, and as you say, she had courage to look at this. When I dug deeper, I discovered, and this is very common, by the way, very common, that when she was nine, she had a traumatic experience. So it's very common that a parent who comes to see me with their child who's got a problem has some kind of unresolved trauma from the same age. And when she was nine, her dad had taken his own life. And she didn't get told the full story. She was told dad's died. He's happy now in heaven. She didn't have any space for her feelings of confusion, of anger, and even rage. And so in the work that we did together, there was no specific parenting techniques that I was sharing with her, really. What we were doing was guiding her back to some of those unresolved feelings that she'd been carrying from that age. And a lot of my work is just tuning in to the body in a safe way and noticing what's being carried in the body. So for her, when we started tuning in, she was noticing that she'd been carrying for a long, long time this feeling of an aching in the chest. And just gently and over time, bringing lots of compassion to these old feelings, these old memories that were stored in, in the body, she started to be able to uncover different feelings and different memories from around that time. Essentially, she started to heal that wound that she'd been carrying. It may surprise people to hear this, but without changing anything specific about parenting techniques, Billy, her son, ended up getting better. He started fighting less. He was doing better at school. There wasn't any more mentions of him feeling like he wanted to die. This is something that I see quite a lot. And as you say, it does take courage. But if you have the right support, and if you do have a child who's struggling with something, it's definitely worth being open to the possibility that there might be something that you're carrying, that if you healed that, if you found a way to bring more love and compassion to that part of you, it could have a really positive knock-on effect on your children. In fact, not could, but most likely would, I would say. I mean, I've had tons of these stories over the years, but it still blows my mind because it's so opposite to what we've been taught, what we've been told, what parenting is. And also, I don't really understand it. How does it actually work that Nina healing that part of herself had this transformative effect on her son without her saying anything to him, doing anything differently to him? Is it that nervous system mirroring that you were referring to earlier, or is it bigger than that? I think it happens on multiple levels. So I would look at it from the nervous system mirroring. I'd also look at it from a sort of spiritual or transpersonal level. And I also think we don't really know exactly how it works. So it's okay to just accept that we don't really know. My hypothesis would be that when your child gets to a certain age where you have some unresolved wound or some unresolved trauma, that child is almost designed beautifully by this intelligent 
system of nature that we're blessed with, that child is designed to trigger you in a particular way. It's almost like life is giving you a chance to heal this thing that you haven't healed if you are open enough to take it. And I think probably that's just the most helpful way to explain it. That's how I like to think of it. It's almost like that story in the womb you were saying, isn't it? Like it's almost the same pattern. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of specific things because I'm conscious of time. The first one was body confidence because I'm raising two girls. You've got a little girl as well. And it's something that really worries me. And you say, actually, yes, of course, social media, of course, the media has a part to play. But you say the real cause of it is self-loathing, which I found quite affronting to read, to be honest, raising two girls. Tell us about that, about what you see in body confidence. Again, the statistics are shocking and scary. I will read one because I just could not believe it. 42% of girls wish to be thinner by the time they reach year four. Well, my little Jessie is in year four in two years, which just, if she came home and said she wanted to be thinner, I would be heartbroken. But that's the reality, isn't it, for so many children? It's really sad. And can I just ask, why did you find it affronting? Because I think self-loathing, those two words put together is something that I've struggled with throughout my life, certainly in my late teens, early 20s. And I think hearing those words applied to what could be my little girls, I found really hard to think about. Because right now I see my two little girls, they, have, they like themselves. And so to think that that could be transformed into self-loathing, and I know how that felt for me, felt really scary. I totally get that. And I feel that children up to a certain age, one of the things that we really can love about children is their innocence. It's almost like the most powerful instinct that you can have as a mum or a parent is that you just want to protect them from the world and you want to shield their innocence so they can just hold on to it and not have to have these difficult feelings and these difficult influence from the world. But unfortunately, it is to some extent inevitable. And that is the sad reality. It's not that we can't do anything about it. But yeah, with the body image stuff, what I talk about, and I think it's important to be aware of is the shame. So shame for people who might not have this sort of context. Shame is a very normal human emotion it essentially drives us to want to be part of a group. So if you imagine the sort of classic caveman tribe context, human beings going around as hunter-gatherers in small groups, if somebody does anything to stand out from the group, to put the group at risk, it would really threaten the existence of the whole group. So the theory is that shame's evolved as this incredibly powerful emotion to keep us tuned into the group, to make us not stand out from the group. And shame is very normal and there's a really innocent level of shame. So, you know, children can experience shame in really obvious and innocent ways, like they might blush or they might hold on to your leg or my daughter fell over this morning in front of her friends and she was just so embarrassed she was just she wasn't really hurt but she was just crying and i'm sure it was more to do with the shame than the actual pain so shame is normal 
But unfortunately, what happens is when we start to get older as children, we start to compare ourselves to other people in different ways. Social media is obviously a big part to play in that because where before we're comparing ourselves to a small group or a tribe, suddenly we're comparing ourselves to this vast community, which is essentially the whole world. We're not even comparing ourselves to a real person who's next to us. We're comparing ourselves to this artificial, fake version of people. And that's quite a constant thing. So that, I think, can really feed into this self-loathing, really. It's self-loathing in comparison to others, that we internalize a sense of ourselves as being somehow less than. That can obviously affect body image, particularly in girls, although sadly we're seeing it more and more in boys as well. But I don't want to leave this on this sort of despairing and worried note because there's lots of things that we can do about it. In the book, I just talk about us having honest, reasonably honest conversations with our children. So rather than pretending that you love every single part of yourself, which is it's never true for anyone, right? Nobody loves every single part of themselves with the best will in the world. I think it's quite helpful to be honest so that if your child comes home and says, hmm, I don't like my nose or I just don't like the way my legs look, you can actually really normalize it and help them to feel less alone by sharing perhaps something small about your own experience of something that you don't like. You don't want to leave it in that place, but I just think that's quite an important step rather than going in and saying, oh, don't be silly. You're just beautiful and gorgeous in every single way, and I love every single bit of you, which is a nice message to have. But what happens to the part of them that's actually questioning, that's actually thinking, okay, well, I hear you saying that, but I don't believe that. And we don't want to push that self-loathing part underground. Yeah, because then it comes out sideways, doesn't it? I'm hearing that if our children start saying things about their their body to normalize that in a way by saying, you know, actually, you know, that's okay. I really don't like my right eyelash or, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to come up with. How important is it as well? I think particularly this is really important for mothers to model that not even body positivity, just body, maybe neutrality. Do you see that playing a part as well? Yeah, I think that's important as well. It's not something, to be honest, that I have a lot of expertise in. But one thing I have noticed, which is important to say, is I've seen some of the sort of positivity movements online, which are overall fantastic body positivity. And there's also different versions of that where it's, you know, embracing neurodiversity and there's whole different versions of this. Uh, celebrating difference, essentially, is what it's about. The problem is when it happens online on social media, it creates its own problems. So I, for example, have worked with children and parents who don't feel like they're being body positive enough. So it can create shame that you're not celebrating your different shapes enough or you're not celebrating your neurodivergence enough or whatever it is. So we just have to be a bit careful about how we share these messages with our children. God, it's interesting, isn't it? It's true. Like us parents can take anything and use it as a stick to beat ourselves up with. 
Exactly. And to be honest, that is my underlying message. And it's simple, but it's so important. It's so needed. And it's just to keep coming back to the feeling. And you have to keep coming back to it, the feeling that you are enough. We live in a world of scarcity, artificial scarcity, mostly. And constantly we're being told in so many different ways, especially as parents and as children, that we're not enough, we're not doing enough, we're not thin enough, we're not clever enough, we're not working hard enough, we're not self-caring enough, we're not parenting well enough. I really think the most important and simple antidote to that is just to keep coming back to this sense. And it's even a mantra that I use for myself and with my clients, just reminding yourself, you are enough, you are enough. It's really simple, and I know it sounds a bit cliched, but it is quite a powerful phrase. To me, when I say that to myself, it is like an antidote to all that pressure that I put on myself. And then, of course, that pressure spills out to my children, right? Of course it does. So, yeah, it's nice to just bring it back to us and to remember to just take some of that pressure off. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would give the gift of trust in your inner wisdom. By that, I mean, I really believe that parents and especially mothers have access to this deep wisdom that if you can trust it and if you can tune into it, you know what the right thing to do is. And the reason I would like to give that gift is there's just such a confusing cacophony of advice and expertise. And especially if you're worried about something yourself or your child, it's actually overwhelming trying to find the right answer. And I found in my work with parents and especially with mums, just helping them to tune into that wisdom that you have inside of you is so helpful and it's there and it very often if not always has the best answer i love that i think you say it in the book is that actually the things that are most going to help you can't google and no expert is going to be able to tell you anyway just like with that screaming example i gave you of course i've done all the googling about it but actually what i came to was yeah nothing outside of me i don't think could have got to that insight. Exactly. That also leads to the sort of basic fact that every child and every family is completely unique. And so ultimately, whatever you try is always going to be a bit of an experiment. It's always a bit of trial and and error. And having that experimental attitude to parenting, I think, is really important because so many parents get frustrated when they've tried a technique that somebody's taught them or they've paid somebody to teach them or they've learned it on Google or on a podcast. It works for a bit and then it stops working and then they're frustrated and then they beat themselves up about it. So I think we can lean into that by having more of an experimental attitude, knowing that you know, children are complex, families are complex. And if we can just have an adaptive, flexible, experimental attitude, it's just so much more helpful. And that kind of flexible mindset is much more likely to lead to good mental health. Oh, it's been so lovely to chat. Thank you so much. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Zoe. It's been a pleasure. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.